Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Larry, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. Dressed like a lumberjack. I love it. Bulked up, ready for winter, back from the conference. And uh, yeah, it's it's now winter. I'm I'm declaring it officially after Thanksgiving. <laughs> I have to ask, how was the conference? The conference really was amazing uh, and very surprising to us. Uh, this was the 27th Lancer Conference. Uh, it had one of the largest attendance, if not the best attendance in a couple of decades, uh, as large or larger as the 50th. We had around 230 people in person and another 200, 250 attending virtually. So 500 plus people for a conference is just significant. They're very busy, Lots more speaker the speakers than average. It went over three days, and uh, the attendees were a lot more engaged. In the past, uh, a lot of times they would just listen to presenters and be pretty quiet, like studious. And this time, you know, they're all over the place talking with each other and very, very engaged with each other rather than just listening. Did you? guess get more optimism on the future of obviously it's 60 years i mean do you think it was an all-out for the 60th or do you think this is something that's going to continue for next year 61st that's it's hard to judge one of the things that makes it hard to judge is we did not see a lot of the old-timer attendees people that had been coming for years and years they weren't there uh, people in their 50s 60s however we saw a host of brand new people in their 50s and 60s that were attending for the first time. I, I can't tell you how many people would come up to me and say, have you been to one of these before? And I would say, well, 20 plus <laughs> conferences before. Or they were, you know, just, they were brand new to the subject. They were brand new to the me. And that would tend to suggest they'll stay engaged with it for a while and may be back. They were all pleased and, and kind of like all newbies. So how do, how do you predict? predict when suddenly you have, you know, a hundred brand new people interested that are taking it up for the first time. So I, I anticipate the conference will be, you know, livelier and, and continue when I, I certainly might not have thought that back at the 50th. What about learning more about the assassination? Do you think that all the information, all the areas researched are really out there? It's about getting the public in on the discussion, or do you think that there's still new areas that you're coming across? I think there are particular areas that, that are, are not new to us and most of the longtime researchers. Things like, you know, too many bullets, problems with the medical evidence, the new uh, movie about the doctors, uh, documentary. I gotta at, watch that still at Parkland, and so there's been a lot of, I, I guess, for the general public, a lot of insight into some of the hardcore evidence that's really bringing people in, that's getting their attention. That's that's not really new to any of us researchers. We now know, you know, we learned with the ARB how many versions of the autopsy report were destroyed before we got the official one. So I, I guess in terms of your of your question, I mean, um, for these people that are coming from the first time, there's a lot for them to learn, a lot of the new stuff. To, for for us old timers, we're kind of dealing with details. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's at the conference, it's hard to bridge the gap from, you know, topics that address, you know, first time 
into the subject versus people that have been looking at it for decades. And the, and the conference was a real mix of that. So I, th I think there's certainly more to be learned. There were there are several hot topics that are in research. Uh, Oswald's Oswald's knowledge and use by the DRE and the CIA in the fall of 1963 is still a hot going topic of ongoing research. That the fact that the CIA may have actually had Marina under covert surveillance after the assassination is a really interesting story that's opening up. Um, I thought so, that was yeah, proven. Yeah, there's stories to pursue still. <laughs> I thought that was proven that they were surveilling her. I know that they had uh, protective custody on her for a few weeks and stuff like that, even after Oswald was killed. But I, I was pretty sure that they still kept monitoring her afterwards and watching just in case she you know, came in contact with someone. Monitoring in a, a different way than we might have imagined. Of course, you, well, you would assume they did. It would seem insane for the FBI or the CIA to let her drop entirely off the radar when, you know, there was still testimony to be taken and evidence to be processed. But um, to a large extent, after those first days and, and a week or so, she was she was turned loose. She moved in with a private citizen uh, and his wife moved her family in with them and then went through a series. So she wasn't in any sort of protective custody, as we might imagine these days. But uh, a document has turned up showing that this the private citizen that took her in, who had been the manager of the hotel where she had been installed for the initial interviews, there's a Dallas police report talking about a phone. I'm sorry, what? Six Flags or Ambassador? Six Flags. Okay. Uh, a phone circuit that has been installed from that house where she was to the White House. Whoa, what the f I yeah, that that's pretty much my response too. So some guys are working on that. They showed me their documents. We're talking about it. And you know, I I know how the communications are handled in the White House and where the line would have gone and how it could have been routed, but um it it appears that there was a level of not just surveillance, but a level of I, I won't go any further than that, but engagement with what Marina might say or interest in what she might say that went beyond what we had understood today. Now, do you think that she came across information and decided to speak out later? She did change her tune, but a lot of people say it was because she came across a lot of conspiracy work and stuff of that sort. Do you think it was because they just lost contact if she had a phone? I think it actually is more simple. We There's a lot been written uh, about how she was pressured in her testimony. And a lot of that is really not what she was pressured about is what Marina clearly did is she tried to protect Oswald uh, in her in her initial remarks. She tried to minimize certain things. Uh, and then when more evidence came to play, whether it was photographs from the backyard or a Walker note or something like that, and it was put in front of her, then she would be forced to elaborate and tell the truth. So was she pressured? Yeah, she was pressured in terms of the evidence when initially it's clear. For example, we know that she had destroyed one Oswald backyard photograph that was still in their possession, you know, months later, uh, that she had had hidden a note from Oswald 
that could relate to the Walker shooting. So I, I think it's an interesting thing. He pressured, yes, but Marina was much more protective of Oswald in that process than people pay attention to her write about. She was not being pressured by by agencies or the F Secret Service or FBI or other than when they brought evidence to her and said, Marina, uh, you didn't mention this, or you said, now what do you have to say about this now? And then she would give in and tell them what I suspect is the real story. Well, most of her warned commission testimonies mentioned by researchers as some of the most damning to Oswald, mostly because I, I look, you could talk about evidence, but none of that stuff can really be traced to Oswald like de definitively. But if you look at like in the eyes of the American people, Marina's testimony solidified that Oswald was the assassin. He was an unstable person based on Marina's statements. I, I would disagree with that. And okay. I have just finished rereading the entirety of her, her, her Warren Commission testimony. What it does is paint a very real world picture of Oswald. It doesn't paint him as being especially violent. It doesn't. It paints him, if anything, as being uh, easily bored, shifting from one subject to another, having causes, which he, he obviously did. Uh, so I, I would say that's, Robbie, that gets into an area I'm working on now. That's the box that the Warren Commission put him into. They excerpted testimony from her and from other people to build an image of him. JFK researchers have built a different image of them that, that conflicts. It's like black and white. The Warren Commission wanted him to be all black. Uh, JFK researchers wanted him to be totally innocent and passive, which he never was. Uh, did Oswald get into fistfights in the Marines? He sure did. Uh, did Oswald buy guns? You bet he did. And, you know, so Marina picks, I think, paints a much more realistic picture, even though she shades it in his favor. You know, did they get into fights? Yeah, they did. Did he hit her? She had bruises. He had bruises. They got into fights. Did he leave her? Multiple times. Did he come back to her? Multiple times. Uh, it's a very personal, real-world picture of a, a relationship between two young people that was really strange. I mean, in terms of what the moves that they made and the stress they were under and, and you know, coming back from Russia, uh, Marina actually was harassed so much by her party in Russia and by the people and connected with her family that she had a brief separation in Russia just because she got so stressed about moving back to the U.S. with Lee Oswald, yet she did so. And... And the couple were actually much more attached than some people would like to paint them. I mean, it confirms uh, the DeMorne Shields testimony that Marina was always belittling uh, Lee in front of him and everybody else. It seems like that obviously the relationship, everyone agrees it was on the rocks or it was this back and forth type thing. But I don't necessarily think it was a 100% Oswald instance. I think Marina definitely took her lumps in there as well, too, on him. But I think... Like, do you think the research community has made Oswald even more mysterious than probably the Warren Commission has? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I will say for everybody, at the risk of annoying my researcher friends, everything that we've discussed, we've made mysterious. 
Some of it is, some of it isn't. But I mean, that's one of the problems for the first 20 or 30 years was that we had no data, very minimal data. So er every area we crossed about virtually everything involved a huge amount of mystery and speculation. I'm not saying that's bad. If, if you take a skeptical approach, then everything is questionable and everything is mysterious as it should be. One of the problems is we haven't filtered a lot of that out as we've learned more real data, as we've as we've corroborated things or tied up loose ends. You know, we've still got 50 years of books on the subject, most of which were written before we know what we know now. Most were pre-ARRB, uh, pre a lot of the fantastic research that's been done and the documents that have been released after the JFK Records Act. So I, I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, everything in the beginning was mis mysterious as it should be. And unfortunately for people entering this subject, if you read the wrong book or wrong series of books, it could still look mysterious when we know better. What are some areas that you feel like are definitely speculation? And what are things that you've learned that you can confirm that did happen? Like if we talk about the Walker shooting, if we talk about Oswald's relationship with Ruth Payne, if we talk about any, did he own a rifle? Did, you know, all these little types of things. I mean, the th maybe it goes into the theater a little bit, but I'm interested in who he was because I don't know. I still don't even know if he was in fucking Mexico City. Uh, that's, that's a thing I wouldn't even touch with a 10-foot pole, but it's one of these areas where I feel like if you understand who the guy is, but it, the both sides, the community and the Warren Commission seem to have clouded up their own image of Oswald and it's not easily accessible to find out who he was. I mean, you could take his wife's statements, but they change back and forth on some things. Uh, and, and they're situational. I, I mean, but that's a great question. And all I can say in about three months, all you have to do is read the monograph and I'll handle it all. Just kidding. Uh, I'll handle a Damn. lot of it. And the, and the <laughs> I really thought that was a real answer. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, again, I think the problem always is, People are situational. They say things at a given time in the context of what's going on around them and what questions are being asked them and what pressures are being asked them. If you saw somebody give a totally consistent, never-changing, unwavering view of something like an interpersonal relationship over three years, I would tell you you're seeing a script. That That's not the way the world works. So certainly there's going to be... Did, did Oswald... Uh, make fun or belittle? Uh, did Marina make fun or belittle him in front of public on in front of friends on occasion? Absolutely, uh, especially somebody close to them like Demore and Shield and his wife. On the other hand, did Oswald harass her about her housekeeping habits, how she was taking care of the baby at, at certain times? Absolutely. Again, even as related by Demore and Shield, who say you know Oswald was very harsh about her smoking. Oswald thought she was sloppy at times, not handling the baby well enough. Oswald obsessive about the baby. So it's a back and forth situation. Um, and, and again, back to your question, um, the, the essential question is, and, and what I had to do at the conference in my presentations was go, look, I'm going to cover the subject. This part we know to be fact, this part is still speculation. For example, 
we absolutely know in the in the late summer and fall of 1963 that Oswald was all over the radar for both the student director at the DRE in New Orleans and Miami, all over the radar for CIA uh, special affairs staff in Miami. There, there's just no doubt about that. However, ex and it, it's absolutely clear that the DRE was already starting propaganda operations using Oswald and information. They were they were writing to legislators about him being a bad example of Castro influence. They were circulating material about him to other groups. The DRE had already embarked. Lee Oswald was not at all invisible or off the radar to either the DRE or the, the community in Miami in general, to the CIA. But what is speculation is exactly what the CIA was doing with that information to a large part because we can't get to the Joannides files that Morley has been looking to in court for years. So we we know about his visibility. We know in some ways how he was being used, but the core of, you know, the core of what was a sanctioned operation within the CIA is still not visible to us. Uh, although we know that the, the, senior CIA officer in, at JM Wave staff was the brother of the very first person that Lee Harvey Oswald contacted in the Cuban community in New Orleans. You know, so we we've got those connections laid down. We're we're missing the level of detail inside the CIA as to what they decided to do and kick off around not just him as a person, but as his image and the uh, basically the resume that he had created for himself in public in New Orleans. You mentioned protective of the baby. I mean, where did you get that information from that he was protective of the baby? There's one report that that uh, Oswald, uh, and I think this comes from DeMora and Sheila, I've decided in the paper that one time she was carrying the baby out the steps not of uh, the apartment, not looking at what she was doing, and she tripped and almost dropped a, off the, the baby off the ground. And Oswald slapped her. That would be an example. Uh, and, you know, now is that is that not protective? And I, I'm not asserting that she wasn't didn't care for the children or didn't protect them or whatever. But he 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 clearly did react when he was very attached to those children, both children uh, and was, you know, it's very one of the, one of the last remarks he made while in jail was to talk to someone from the family about you know had they gotten new shoes for the baby yet you know those those people that want to dehuman disconnect him from the family and dehumanize him are way off the line if you if there's a great uh, listing of his his public remarks and remarks that are actually transcribed and quoted to him during his last 24 hours and they're very personal you know, they're not not the guy, not the comments of a guy that's gone off the rails and done something totally uh, inconsistent with his past behavior. Well, it brings up the question why, if you're so protective of your kids, would you take a shot at the president knowing that you're going to be locked away forever and never see them grow up? Uh, my answer would be he didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, that that's a... 
one of the big things to look for, which gets ignored when you start putting in boxes, is consistency. Okay. How consistent was his behavior from his childhood and his school days on? And quite frankly, he is he is rather consistent. One of the things that stands out and was the the biggest problem in his life was the fact that he did become easily bored after three or four months with anything. He'd be he would become very excited about a new job or excited about being in the Marines or being a radar operator. After three or four months, Oswald would, you know, he's he's always looking, he's always reading, he's always reading about politics and geopolitics and studying. And so he would kind of drift away from one thing to another thing. And, uh, you know, you can see that we've talked about before. It, it's It's kind of strange to think that during 1963, a guy that would read books about JFK and Khrushchev would write extensively about how he thought the best solution for the world was to merge capitalism and socialism. Read read some of his writings in 1963 and see what really was motivating him and see what he was interested in. And and take that same guy who never said a word against JFK other than saying he thought he had real potential, he liked what he was doing, and could probably establish a talk with Khrushchev, that that guy would go off one afternoon and decide to shoot the president. It, totally inconsistent. Do you think, I mean, this is speculation on my part, but do you think if she knew that he was protective of the kids, that she would know that in her mind that throwing Oswald on, under the bus with everything means that she can keep, you know, the kids still have a mother and plus they get money as well too? No, th there was never any question of that, really, quite frankly, from the beginning. Uh, Marina had been had had a network of friends in both Fort Worth and Dallas. I mean, she had she had spent as much time during after their return from uh, Russia when they were in Fort Worth, Dallas, living with other people as she had in Oswald. People like Marina. She got along with people. She's much more social than Oswald were. I, I don't think there was any, if there was any concern, and, and you know, we talked about the fact that Oswald was actually writing and helping her trying to get back into Russia. They had a standing appeal with, with the Soviets to let her back, let her and the children back into Russia, whether or not he came. So, no, I don't, I, I think... If you really look at their interaction with each other, it was, I won't call it a love-hate relationship, but again, she was very bonded to him. When when he told her after, you know, he proposed, they got married a very short period of time, and later, only later did he tell her he was going back to the United States, and she said, okay, I'll go with you. She comes to the United States, and during their first year back, you know, he takes different jobs, quits jobs, goes to other jobs, and she'll wait for him, and he'll come back, and then they'll get together again. And even, you know, on that that last trip back on Thursday, it's like, okay, Marina, I, I'm ready. I've got a job. I'll get an apartment. I really want you to come back, and we want to live together as a family. And what does she say? She says, look, Lee, I got a brand new baby. I'm living with, and I got diapers, diapers out my ears. I got, I'm living with a lady that has a washing machine. As soon as you get the washing machine, we'll move back in with you. This is real world stuff. 
you know, this is not fiction. So she hasn't, she hasn't thrown away. And I, I definitely feel that, that you can see in her actions that she does try to cover up things at first that she thinks will make him look bad. And it's only when she gets caught that she will tell the story about the backyard photographs, which she tried to destroy. Of course, it's a fascinating to think about Oz. They kept those backyard photographs. You know, there was nothing wrong with those photographs until November 22nd. They were there. Uh, anyway, I gave you another very long rambling answer. I love it. Um, your perspective on this is interesting because I haven't heard it from any other researchers before, but I'm interested when it comes to John Fain's interview with Oswald, the FBI agent who interviewed him for two hours, they were more concerned about Marina thinking that she was like a swallow or this person that's going to connections with the KGB. He said that he would let them know if the KGB ever contacted Marina. And that's when I think that, cause he starts paying the money back for his loan, like in a hundred dollar bits. And I'm like, I don't know if that's when he became like an FBI informant or just given some information on the side, doesn't need to be an official thing or anything. But do you think he was trying to maybe like, if, if you look at that, I mean, do you think he's going to be giving information on his wife or do you think he might've been just fibbing a little bit? Now, I, I think actually the quote, as I remember it was, it, he said, told Fane that if, promise that if anybody you know with a communist connection or soviet connection contacted him he would report it and you have to remember even before he talked to fain he had just written the first part of his manuscript that talked about how much he had learned to detest soviet government and how the soviets were using the parties international parties as for nationalistic purposes, just for Russian better interest. He was very, he was very turned off about Russia. When when he came back to the US, he would have been more than willing to dump all over the Soviets. He was fed up with the Soviet system. I mean, this is a guy who the only guy in the world who ever did a strike in a Soviet factory. Like, you know, this is I didn't know that. that's Oswald. Yeah, a Titovitz described his friend described that he he got fed up with working conditions, and he especially got fed up with the fact that they were constantly required to attend factory party meetings, you know. And and Oswald referred to them as long, boring sessions with nothing to them, where everybody watched you to make sure you were really listening, and you, of course you didn't get paid for it. So he was he was getting fed up and he actually refused to work for several days and it was very embarrassing for his boss who uh, obviously that's a problem who talked him going back into work but looking at his his factory experience is is quite a a tell on Oswald's behavior uh so no he i i absolutely he in writing and in word and everything else he's talked turned off not about russia and russians but about the soviets and the communist party Okay, um, but so I think he would have reported that in the same way. You remember in the spring of 1963, he he becomes an activist uh, against both the ultra right, anti Castro types. That's why he was so willing to inform to the FBI in New Orleans on the anti Castro Cubans. He he didn't mind talking to the FBI as long as it was fit his agenda. So he. He would voluntarily be a source. Now, if he thought they were harassing Marina or something like that, he could throw a fit. 
Posty. But he was willing to talk with the FBI. Posty stalking his wife. I'm sorry, what? Posty stalking his wife. Yeah, that, that would upset him if, if he felt that they were upsetting Marina. Uh, you know, it's like if you want to if you want something, talk to me, you know, don't don't harass my wife. Um, so that that's perfectly consistent. And and as you said, interestingly enough, Hosty in his own book says that for whatever reason, he was paying more attention to Marina than he was to Oswald. As as a as a suspect, I guess, although he never had any ev any evidence of any connection at all and all. One of the reasons both Lee and Marina were cleared by the FBI and not put on the watch list after their return was the FBI report specifically says they have been following on with all of their Communist Party sources in Dallas, all their informants in Dallas, and there's no indication that either Lee or Marina are making any effort to contact those people, are making any like sympathetic statements towards the Soviets. Or, so they actually didn't put them on the watch list. So why Hosty is still, I, I don't know, but that's what he said in his book. I know people say that Hosty had the hots for Marina. I don't necessarily believe that, but he did go down to the headquarters station and write a note and try and get Hosty. But that that that's still what was on the note. Hosty says that it wasn't about blowing up the headquarters. It was about reporting it to higher authorities. But then even in the official record, it states like, well, some accounts vary as whether he was going to blow up the police station or report it to higher authorities. I mean, do, do you get a sense that he was a bit of a hothead, Oswald was? I, oh, Oswald in terms of being, uh, in terms of hot-headed, in terms of, like taking offense at things or or more like he would say something he probably wasn't going to end up doing, but he would just say something drastic to oh, get yeah. across. Oh, to get it to get attention. Absolutely. Yeah. To get attention. And there's plenty of evidence. That's a very consistent the fact that Oswald would write a complaint note to the FBI about hosting. Oswald had already written multiple complaint notes. He had written complaint notes about his mail being opened. Uh and I Oswald would write notes about complaints and that his unemployment didn't. Oswald is, yeah, Oswald, it's, it's funny, Oswald's in the system. He's he's happy to take unemployment insurance. He's happy to, happy to take medical support. But when the medical support is not what he thinks it should be for Marina, he'll make a complaint about it. So that, that's classic Oswald. Do you think how concerned do you think he was for trying to get Marina out of Ruth Payne's house? Oh, I think he wanted he wanted the family back together. It's not even just Ruth Payne. He wanted the kids. He this had happened at least six times that I can think of over the previous eight months, where Marina and a child had gone to live with somebody else. He'd gone off to get a new job, look for work, whatever. But he always he writes like. He when he when he left them in Dallas, uh, there's a series of letters writing Marina and Ruth about, you know, here's how things are going in New Orleans. I'm looking forward to, you know, trying to get a job, get you here. That's he always. And, and then but that's where the boredom comes in. He'd get them back together again. And Marina would get and see it in her testimony in her letters, too. It's kind of like uh you know, Lee is treating us much better now. He's paying attention to me. And then within 60, 90 days, it's kind of like, 
no, he's back. He's just reading. He spends all his time writing. You know, he's not paying attention to me. And and quite frankly, her other constant complaint is that he's never having enough sex. Jesus. Which, which you can't ignore. I, I don't bring it up to be titillating. It's just a fact guy's of got life two and a kids. young couple like that. You the know? guy's got two kids. What, what else I, I was going to say, yeah. So obviously her standards may be a little higher than his. <laughs> That would fit with the swallow angle, I guess, if you're looking at that with well, Marine. And it would have fit. There is no doubt. Okay. And just be real. Marina liked men. She did. In Russia, she was a party girl in Russia. Titovitz described it. She was very social, which was what attracted Oswald. Titovitz says Oswald was attracted to her because with his status as an American and his apartment, his money, he's going to take her away from all these Russian guys, which he did. Okay. So it's kind of like a conquest type behavior on Oswald's part, strutting his stuff. Okay. But then he gets bored with that. Same as in the Marines. In the Marines, Oswald is hitting all the bars and the brothels for a period of time. And then it's over and done and he's back to reading. Like it's just a pattern of behavior. Her her pattern, I suspect, was different. She expected it to be more active than it was in, in terms of a sex life. And that's that's just Oswald. Oswald just had other interest, you know. Do you think that boredom or that constant looking for something else, looking for something else? I mean, it's a quality of ADHD if you look into that a little bit. But if you really examine his associates, they vary drastically from Cuban exiles, allegedly. And then you have like people like David Ferry or people that would be some people's theory of the Minutemen or whoever, all these random different types and even white Russian community or whoever, George DeMorn Shield. I mean, do you think that's possible that it was because of the boredom factor? He would just start going and getting involved in many different friends and groups. I, I think what it was, if if and DeMore and Shield actually described this pretty well. Oswald was a thinker. Oswald was by himself. He was a thinker. He read a ton. It was stated by his Marine Corps fellow non-commissioned and officers that Oswald knew more about geopolitics and could discuss it more effectively than the officers that were above them. And he did that and annoyed the heck out of them. His, his commander said, you know, this guy is, is as bright as I am and talks better than I do, except he's a pain in the rear in terms of his military duties. Okay. Oswald was, was a thinker. He, you can see in his writings what interests him. So he, he was always what you would call a, at least mentally an activist. He wanted to see the world change. And he would he would get behind that. He would go do things and explore things that other people wouldn't like, like his interest in in Japan and in Russia and 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 listen listen to his his speaking his in interviews. Um, so I don't know that it was it was basically he he was not oriented towards the type of physical and social activities that other people were. It, Call him a nerd if you want. And maybe that's the best description, except he was a nerd about politics and geopolitics, but he was continually frustrated because the world wasn't working out the way he thought it should be. He, even DeMorne Shield quotes him as saying, as talking to him and saying, Lee, you, you know, you're always, it's like you're always having a problem with stuff. It, it, and, and 
you know, and, and Oswald responded by saying, yeah, you know, it, I, I'm now, I may never find what I want to look for. I'm looking for, but I'm still going to look for it. You know, I'm, I'm still going to pursue what I'm looking for. Do you think that's like with the radio interview he did where he's very concise and very precise about the statements that he has? I mean, do you think that's because he was very passionate, but also he knew a lot about what he was talking about? And that's why he had the openness to speak on it, because that interview does not match the interview when he's getting paraded through Dallas police headquarters, which, in my opinion, you can hear the scared in his voice. Like he doesn't know what's going on, but I think it's because he got thrown in the shit and he's like, oh, God, I don't know how to get out of this. When he's talking about what he knows, he's extremely well spoken extremely in control and as you say you hear that in the radio interview in dallas or you see it in his writing uh everybody that he interacted with positively would say that for example he did multiple job interviews with the texas employment commission if you look back at those records the interviewers all say about three different things first of all he speaks and writes and acts at a college level even though he's not degreed he is very knowledgeable about many things, and he presents himself well. And they all say that he should be in a management level or professional level job. And he tests well, IQ-wise and score-wise. The problem, they all say, is yet he needs a job right now because he needs money. He has a family. He needs money, and we can't wait to go through the process. And so they get him uh, you know, not blue collar type jobs, not white collar, even though they consider that he could be placed in a much better job. Um, so I, I think that reflects what you're talking about uh, as well. Uh, he, he interviews well, he speaks well when he wants to. Now, if you don't agree with Oswald and you don't share his politics and you make that known, he's a jerk. I mean, that's, he's not going to waste time on you. Where did Oswald, for you, leave the biggest fingerprint of like identifying who he was? Was it in Dallas? Was it in Texas? Or was it in New Orleans? Was it in uh, Russia? Uh, I would say that it, it, in terms of who he was, really, it starts with his reading material. If, if you really want to know who he was, you know, what books did he read? What magazines did he subscribe to? If you look at what magazines he was reading and and in, in 1963, it's stuff like The Nation. You know, it's not even Time or Life, which is what I was reading. He He's reading the next step up in terms of politics, progressive magazines and journals, uh, socialist newspapers, Socialist Workers Party paper, uh, The Worker. And he, that's what he's interested. He's interested in... Uh, in that's where he stands out in what he read, what he wrote, and, and in the speeches that you talk about in New Orleans. And, and it's still gel for him. Uh, he thought, I think he really thought, well, he, and he said that. It's like, when I ta started talking to young people in Japan and I started reading about Russia, it's kind of like he was fascinated that the answer might really be in the Soviet Union, Russia. He had to go see for himself. It did not work out. It wasn't what he hoped it was going to be. He comes back. By 1963, he's now hoping that what he's looking to find may be in, in Castro's socialism inside Cuba. Uh, but you see that in 1963 in terms of he's always 
He has a picture of what he wants the world be to be like, and he's looking for it. Yeah, I mean, what about the Walker shooting? Do you think they could have drived him to take a shot at Walker? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think two, two or three things. First of all, Oswald, again, as DeMorne Shield said, Oswald was more and more increasingly in the months, you know, once he got a steady job, he'd been working for several months at Jaggers, stable income, stable apartment. He, he starts again becoming bored and turning back into his, you know, his political interest and starts talking about, well, I'm just going to, I'm against racism. I'm against the, you know, the ultra right racism is the biggest problem that this country faces. He had already said that when he was in Russia, you know, and yeah, and he starts talking like that. And DeMorne Shield challenges him and says, you know, Lee, I've known people like that before, but I could always tell when they were real because they were doing something about it. And what are you doing? And suddenly Damn. Oswald goes all OK, all in on being an activist. Uh, and for example, uh, something that most people don't realize that one of those newsletters or newspapers he's holding in the backyard photo. And, and of course, this is speculation, but we know he's subscribing to them. And that that paper was found and, you know, he had it. It was found in his his personal effects afterwards uh, that he's holding up, waving, has a letter to the editor. And it's signed News from Dallas, L.H. OK. And when people interviewed this socialist worker party, it's, it's like, you know, it's after the assassination. We we stopped all of this. We stopped it. We removed whenever we could any evidence that we had been in correspondence with Oswald. Apparently, they said that they Oswald sent them copies of the backyard photos to show them how that he was an activist and he was a you know he was serious about this and that they destroyed it immediately because that's not you know those are we don't want that in our files when the FBI comes to visit either before or after the assassination you know that makes like we're encouraging these people to arm revolt we don't like that so Oswald was becoming an arc an an activist we know and this is what we know for sure we know for sure that he took several pictures of the Oswald residence both front back side down the alley not only down the alley but further down the street, after when the FBI really investigated it, they could match up the photos to a path that he was actually following out over a railway trestle. It's kind of like a dirt path, like an escape route, if you will. Um, and we uh, Walker's address is in Har Lee's notebook. Okay, so I don't think there's any doubt that he had an interest in Walker. I don't. He was there. Uh, when Marina says, you know, he made diagrams and and drew his maps and stuff uh, in regard to the Oswald residence, certainly seems like it did to me. The only thing is speculation. There's no speculation about if he was there. The speculation is, did he personally take a shot? And if so, was it intended to actually harm uh, Walker or scare him? That's pure speculation. But uh, Oswald striking out, you know, it, it's it's interesting. The the community has always abandoned the Walker story because the Warren Commission made it, you know, all right, well, if he shot at Oswald, he shot at the president. There's a huge difference 
in the two with all of the apparent planning and study and outspoken remarks against Walker and the racist in regard to that, plus nothing at all comparable to that in compared to JFK. No plan, everything's apparently spontaneous, no remarks, no, I was satisfied with it, nobody I told I did it, no, no sign that he was anything other than happy with JFK. The two incidents are completely opposite. Do you believe that he was up at the sixth floor when the motorcade went by? Uh, no. Okay. I think he had been downstairs eating lunch in the first floor lunchroom, just like he said, and he went down upstairs to get a soda from the soda machine, got the soda machine, and exactly where he was at the time of the shooting, uh, I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, he could have been looking out the front door. You buy a prayer man. Yep. Okay. I, I don't think you can prove that one way or the other. And I, just, again, speculation. I was like trying to, it would be totally like Oswald to have said, oh, I'm no fanboy. I, I didn't even know there was a motorcade in Dallas when he's talking to his fellow workers and they're going, you're going to come out and watch with us. Oh, no. Oswald's cool, right? He's not going to be a fanboy out in the street waving flags walk, watching the president. On the other hand, seeing Oswald like sneak out behind the front door to take a quick peek <laughs> wouldn't surprise me a bit. I mean, are there any questions left for you about Oswald, uh, like from work that you're working on now? I mean, is there anything that your areas that you just felt like you might have come across that might be cool, interesting information, but it's just nothing. It's just a dead a dead end. I Well, I, I will be elaborating on the things that we've discussed and what I think is consistent and happened and what didn't. And in terms of anything shockingly new, I mean, we've had all of this on our plate. It's, it's data. So it's more like how you connect the dots and organize it. Uh, you know, uh, in, in Dallas last week, I talked about the Odeo incident where I think it's likely that Oswald was there with somebody like Carlos Hernandez. Called Leon. We met in New Orleans. Uh, Boylan and I did an hour-long presentation on who we provably, at least to ourselves, uh, tie the two guys to, Oswald and Victor Hernandez, uh, who were the mystery Cubans that Oswald had connected in, to in New Orleans from Miami. We can prove they were both there. Uh, and the McCowan incident with Oswald attempting to buy weapons for a revolution in Central America. You know, uh, so there there are many areas that I think can be connected into a picture of what Oswald was doing, including what you and I have talked about, which is the Redbird Air, Airport incident, where I think he was set up to believe that he was going to be going out of um, Dallas on the 22nd to Cuba and ties into the fact that he went home to make one more plea to Marina uh, that, you know, could they, could she guarantee to move out right now? She said, no, I want that dishwasher. He said, I'll get it for you. And, you know, then he has to choose whether he's really going to get to Cuba. He's built a resume that's going to make him look like an important activist and supporter and send for her afterwards. And by the way, she said she would do that. She's on record as saying that he proposed this first to her in New Orleans in the summer, and she said he was, 
she wasn't going to be part of that. But if she managed to make it there, yeah, she'd bring the babies and join them. This might be out of where you kind of focus, but do you think that Oswald had met Ruby or been in this club at some point, like some witnesses say? That's a that's a hard one. I I absolutely think Good Ruby question. knew about Oswald. Now, whether they'd actually met in person, um, I I don't. I, I just that would be pure speculation. There there's no reason for them to have met. Uh, in terms of my view of what came down in the attack itself, um, for Jack to know that there's somebody to be set up and to to help set him up by helping get somebody uh, to help get the rifle into the school book depository or have, you know, for Jack to do things relating to a guy he had been told was working in the book depository, I think makes absolute sense. It makes more sense to me that the two would never have met. I mean, the, the way these things work is you don't introduce the participants to each other. There's too much risk there. Do you how I mean, how much blame do you place at Dallas police's feet when it comes to the assassination or at least the clouding of covering up evidence or things of that sort? There's obviously a lot of things with Dallas police that just don't make sense and kind of corrupt. Um, it's a question I've been asking every other researcher because looking more at Dallas police, I think it's an area that a lot of us don't really talk about, at least from my experience in talking with researchers, we kind of focus on the main military industrial complex. But Dallas police, I mean – I honestly, in my opinion, think they paid Jack Ruby to get rid of Oswald because if that ever went to a trial, you know how much they violated his constitutional rights as a whatever, just everything, the evidence, the paper bag, all this type of stuff that's just coming out. That's all Dallas police stuff. I Well, the thing is, I um, my view, again, speculative, is virtually virtually certain that Oswald was, uh, Ruby was an important part as a as a field level guy, because he knew the police, because he had motorcycle policemen that he was close to, detectives that he was close to. He bought them drinks. Could, right, yeah, exactly. So he, he was he was the perfect source of information about security, the motorcade. He was the perfect guy. If you needed uh, to co-op somebody in the school book depository, uh, one of the workers, there's a very good chance that if you had actually traced that back, you could have put some of them in Ruby's club, uh, possibly Doherty. Um, you know, a couple of them had charges against them. He would be the perfect person to know what person on the police force or say in the school book depository could be co-op to do something that they thought was just minor, trivial, you know. Ask them a question, get some information. I mean, Ruby is the guy that's in the assistant DA's office the same week as the assassination meeting with him. This is Jack Ruby with Alexander. Alexander is the guy who brings charges of conspiracy that get thrown out, right? You know, uh, so I guess to answer your question, Robbie, I, I think Ruby was essential to at a very low level of the plot. And to involve police officers in, in relatively minor stuff. And that could could have include, include related even as far as involving Tippett. Uh, you know, uh, so I don't rule that at all. In fact, I think that's likely. That's 
that's the key role he could have played. As far as the Dallas police essentially being dirty after the fact, I'm 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 conflicted with that because you got two things going on. You've got during the first 48 hours, Dallas senior officers are saying saying things about multiple people being involved, about Ruby being or Oswald being picked up by a, a participant on the street out in front of Elm. They're bringing people in for questioning. They're looking for conspiracy. They really are. There, there's, it's not a lone nut that they're looking for. It's only after this story swings after about 48 hours that y- then you find stuff that goes missing. Uh, the list of people in the school book depository goes missing. The list of cars that was behind the fence goes missing. Uh, the report of people with rifles in the plaza area days before the assassination goes missing. The polygraph of Frazier goes missing, where he says, no, that wasn't the Bagley Oswald had, goes missing. Stuff goes missing. So that's kind of like a, it's not that we're, they're framing And who is making it go missing? Is it really Dallas police that's making it go missing? Or is it the FBI that's making it go missing? I don't know. I, it does go missing from the hands. It doesn't go into evidence. But I keep going back to uh, something Armstrong found, which corresponds even between Dallas FBI and headquarters FBI, where headquarters writes back to Dallas and says, you know, that list of stuff you sent to us, you know, we we have a problem because there's much more stuff on your list than the list that we currently have made. So we're going to be sending that back to you. And here's your choice. You can say that you can, that we screwed up and pointed, you know, asked for stuff that you sent that it's not on the list that we're sending back to you, or you can rewrite your list. The damn Minox light meter or whatever the hell that thing is. Which one do you think that they did? It's kind of like, oh, you know, I think I'll just rewrite the list. And when, by the way, Chief of Station is going, yeah, promotion is in promotion is in jeopardy if we don't just rewrite the list. <laughs> you know. So I, I I think my view of the whole thing is a lot of stuff was made to go away, but I don't think the decision, the decision was forced. I the, the police, I, I have talked to police officers themselves who, you know were concerned that they didn't get to do the job that they would have done or the investigation that they would have done or would be allowed to. You know, you and I have talked about my friend Connie Chrisberg, who wrote a first day, you know, first night article quoting the doctor and later found that her article had been read edited because everything was passed by the FBI. Okay. Now, here's a problem that we always have. Typical conspiracy problem. You and I both know standard practice in police investigations is to hold on to a certain amount of information, hold it off the record, not share it with the public, because we're going to use that in the investigation, right? If if everybody, including the bad guys, knows everything that we've got, we're at risk. You know, that, so it's it's common practice. That's why, well, with the investigations and process, you know, we're not talking. That's part of best practices for police work. Then, 
But if you have done that from the very beginning, it's so easy to co-opt it and make sure part of that stuff never does become public. And that's a totally separate decision. So your question is about essentially dirty cops. I think there were some dirty cops on the police force that were leveraged in what they thought was very minor way by Ruby. I think a lot of the work that the Dallas police did was manipulated it, manipulated with with their with their knowledge. You know, you can read some of the interviews about the polygraph of Frazier and know that's going on because one officer will say, we never did polygraphs. Other will say, oh, Fritz never trusted polygraphs, so we didn't pay any attention to it. Others will say, oh, I don't know. I no, I don't think we polygraphed the guy. Uh, whereas we absolutely know the polygraph was made and reported, and he didn't identify the bag. And that at the time that got copied to the FBI. The FBI was told about that. <clears throat> Later on, it's not even in Dallas police files. Who made it go away? I don't know. Do you think Oswald shot Tippett? Maybe. Don't know. Uh, I I believe that at that point in time, Oswald realized that he had been set up, that he was very scared, that he thought his life was in danger. Um, I, I don't think it's impossible that Oswald would have done so considering how Tippett was a, approaching him if that was Oswald that approached him. I don't know that that was Oswald and Tippett, frankly. Uh, you know, there there's nothing absolutely to confirm in my mind that Oswald and Tippett encountered each other. What about Oswald being at the theater? I think Oswald, that the, the theater, I, I think Oswald was at the theater. I think Oswald, there, to me, there's a very good case that Oswald was at the theater before he could have been involved in Tippett. So when I answered your question, maybe he shot him. I think mentally and psychologically, he was scared enough and strung out enough to defend himself. I think he did go to the theater uh, because that that may, I think that was likely a contact point where he was supposed to be going anywhere that day. He thought that he was going to contact the people that are, we're going to get that already set up to get that plane to fly out of Dallas. The cardboard box top that he had. The what? The cardboard box top that everybody points at. Uh, maybe. maybe. He was getting up and sitting sporadically throughout the theater. That is, yeah, he was. Uh, it's it certainly looks to me he was moving around. He wasn't didn't go. He, just, he, he didn't just go to watch the picture. That's that's not happening. For one thing, Oswald's a news junkie. We know that. He always watched TV news. He listened to radio. He read the newspaper every day. He's a news junkie. If, if anything, Oswald would have been trying to find out what was going on with a, you know, if he was totally innocent and not didn't feel threatened. No, he's not just going to go watch a movie. That's not happening. Um, although he did like movies and watch movies a lot. Um, I, I am more interested in what Armstrong found that apparently was actually in a police report and went away, and that was the torn dollar bill, because we know that was actually a, a practice that had been taught and was being used by some of my suspects 
in the Cuban exile community. It's actually documented that people that were involved with the Amworld project that was going on at the time were using that. That was a it was identification practice that they were using. So I'm probably more interested in that dollar bill and why Armstrong found evidence that had been taken from Oswald, but then that evidence or it should have been in the files was not there. So you can't tie it discreetly to him in his, you know, evidence file. I, that that makes me more suspicious than the box top. I mean, if you could give a description or your opinion on Oswald to someone who's never looked into the case, what would you say about him? You know, I would say I, I would use DeMornshill's description, who actually knew him personally. He said to him, Oswald was a proto-hippie. If Oswald had been born 10 years later, he would have been a peace activist. He would have been protesting, nonviolently protesting. He would have been writing. He would have been doing speeches. He would have been a campus organizer. He was by nature a political activist looking for, quite frankly, solutions that he wasn't ever going to find. He probably ended up frustrated, but he was he was he was not at all the kind of person that would if he were a proto hippie, he wouldn't have become, you know, among the bombers of the anti-war movement. That that was not him. It, he was he was he was a thinker and to an ex and a planner and an organizer. He planned everything that he did in minute detail. Uh, from joining the Marine Corps to learning a language to going to Russia. He was a planner and an organizer. And if he had if he had been in his milieu with other people that thought like he did during the 60s, I, I can see him becoming a, a name on campus. Uh, that's the Oswald that I see. And did he have social skills? Sure he did. You can see he he dated many women. He proposed to many women. He was very social in the right settings. But when you took him back into Texas, of course, <laughs> those settings were limited in 1963. So I don't know if that a, a description as a as kind of being before his time, five to eight years before his time, is is very fitting to me. He would have he would have looked quite normal in 1969, 1970 on a college campus. Well, Larry, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I told you we were going to wrap it up because I got a couple things we got to work on afterwards. Um, but uh, thank you so much for giving me the time. Is there a place where people can find any of your links and where your monograph will be? I can go back and link it in the episode once it's out. Yeah, there's there's a sample. The books are on Amazon. So just look for Larry Hancock on Amazon. I do have a blog. Uh, look for Larry Hancock on WordPress. Uh, uh, I'm publishing my monographs these days. I just find it easier to do than to putting it all on a book at either on the Mary Farrell website or Dealey Plaza UK website. And I think at this point in time, the, the anticipated Oswald monograph is targeted for the Mary Farrell website. Well, I'll link all those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again, Larry, and thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. <laughs>